It's like a lot of twinkling lights. I do a lot of podcasting and recording and webinars and stuff, but you guys have a way better setup than uh, anybody that I know. This is great. Wow. That's awesome. And spoken well from a man wearing a tuxedo. On this week's podcast, we'll talk about Elon's really bad week and get into some conversion rate optimization with Andy Crestadina of... Of Orbit Media. <laughs> Sorry. I like that. That's a, that kind of sounded great. That's good. Yeah. Perfect. Welcome to Brilliant, a podcast about innovation, experience, and design. With you, as always, is Justin Durek right here, Vice President of User Experience. And with me is Justin Dobb, President of Mignani. How's it going, Justin? It's going very well. Again, we have, for the second time, a very special guest in, uh, in the podcast studio. Yeah. I'm glad to be here. Wow. Wow. Let me just tell the listeners at home that this is a production. You guys have got a serious setup in here. I'm very impressed. Thank you. I, I like things that go bing. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's really a bing. problem. It's good. It's, it, is, it is bordering on obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, if it has chords, I'm in. That's great. Yeah. And I'd also like to paint the word picture that... Um, that of the three of us, I am the most slovenly dressed of today. Andy takes the cake. He's he walked in here with a tuxedo today. I like to look good for recordings. Well, yeah, thank you. Polished. It's uh, uh, bring it right. I'm uh, bring my A game for you guys. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so actually, why don't you tell us where, you, where you're going tonight? What? Just down the street at uh, the Hilton, there is an event. It's a Economic Club of Chicago event, and the guest speaker tonight is the CEO of Microsoft. And uh, it's fancier than usual for me. I'm on the dais. It's kind of like wow. in the back. Yeah, sitting up high. Um, but because I'm on a committee, it's not that fancy. And it's actually a much more personal group, uh, approachable group than people might think. But yeah, Economic Club, super cool. Yeah, and yeah Microsoft I, rolled out a bunch of stuff early mm, this week. They're yeah. kind of keep augmenting in the hardware game there. Yeah. Mm -hmm, Speaking mm -hmm. of user experience, and, and of course, who's more approachable than Satya Nadella? I'm kind of excited to hear what he says. Yeah. There's, um, uh, you guys are kind of more on, what do you, what would you ask him if you could? What would you talk to that guy about? Um, I think my first question is, uh, how long will you be an OS company? Hmm. I hmm. mean, I, honestly, I mean, now granted you could say their whole cloud platform is an OS in and of itself, but I mean, Windows, really? I mean, this is, hmm. they're milking Windows right now. They know it, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's an incremental revenue. It's not the driver of their business. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious if they would even utter out loud what the future looks like for that. Good question. Yeah, and I, I also I also think that, I don't know if I would ask, but I'd love to have a conversation about what it's been like to be there while they've transitioned from something that was, a company that was really known for one mm -hmm. major platform into mm -hmm. this wider ecosystem of the hardware, particularly. I mean, I think mm -hmm. they're upping the game. Um, they're introducing new ideas that Apple Mm -hmm. is kind of apple's kind of resting on their laurels in the hardware game mm -hmm. whereas i think microsoft is really pushing um particularly in the pro space which is a very interesting thing relative to to apple well i'm kind of sorry i'm here i mean wouldn't it be nice if you had him in this chair he would be ideal for this podcast you guys should make some calls I, I, I might get a little sweaty <laughs> what i wonder sweatier about, sweatier oh. it's hot in here that's the that's the downside <laughs> of the podcast studio the um, I wonder about their positioning with uh, LinkedIn and integration with Microsoft Dynamics. How come LinkedIn isn't a CRM itself? Isn't LinkedIn everybody's CRM? Right. I doubt I'll talk about it, but that acquisition and the potential there, and I mean, how do you not use that like a CRM? We all do every day. 
Yeah. They may still be picking up things Balmer just left laying around. <laughs> that could be. <laughs> well, he's off, you know, shooting hoops with the Clippers. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the lost years. That's mm. what they call mm. the Balmer tenure. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of eccentric CEOs. <laughs> Good. Yes. Anyway. Let's talk about Elon Musk. He, he He's a recurring character, Andy, I'm... As a frequent listener of the Brilliant Podcast, I'm sure you know, we come mm-hmm. back to Elon. Mm-hmm. Just because he kind of sits in that space with the innovation and design piece. But and, yeah, he had a very... self-immolation. In- self-immolation. <laughs> 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 yeah, he had a really interesting week. Very interesting. I, I will say, uh, I think he had the best week possible. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, this wasn't the bad part. This was the coming back part. Yeah, the the fine and that he gets to remain CEO. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I'm a firm believer that the CEO should not be the chairman of the board. At the same time, there's a governance problem there mm-hmm. to begin with. Mm-hmm. And that's probably one of the biggest issues with Tesla to begin with. Right. Is that they don't have the checks and balances that the board is supposed to provide over the CEO. But the other is that the, the threat was he would not be able to work for a public company right. for a period of years, right? So they, they would have you know, castrated him for lack of a better term. Right. So if I'm him, you know, I'm getting uh, a doob. (laughs) (laughs) Smoking up. relaxing, you know. For the rest of the week. It was, what, 0.1% of his net worth, $20 million? So, you know, that's that's like one of us buying someone a beer. Mm -hmm. Right. Sold. Yeah. I, I don't think that this was a bad week for him at all. I would be excited by that news. This didn't take him out of the game at all. Um, I think that, that investors are probably happy with this news. I'd have to say I would be. Yeah, and they delivered uh, all of the Model 3s that they mm-hmm. promised and more, although apparently they were just asking other Tesla owners, could to, could you deliver this car for us, please? That would be great. And of course, they're the new, what, you know, the Apple sheeple, right, mm-hmm. are the Tesla right. owners. And they're like, I would love to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Mr. For, Musk. Yeah, for free. For you, anything. <laughs> yeah. Did you see the Joe Rogan show? Uh, I saw clips of it. I saw a good portion of it. Just yeah. clips. Yeah. Really good. I think it's worth watching. It's yeah. worth listening to. We, yeah. we talked about how uh, he started getting into all of his interesting beliefs about living in a simulation and all mm-hmm. the other things that are, you know, kind of classic Musk. Yeah, pretty out there. He's like, is this all real? This might not be real. Maybe we're inside it. Maybe it's all a big simulation. Um, the ending is good. Not the smoking and doobie part, but, but the, the big idea, the big picture for him, very big. It's excellent. Worth listening to. All right. So, so what, if you can encapsulate it. His, uh, his big why? is to do useful things that make life good for people. He is, he's, I mean, it's a legit visionary who wants to change people's experiences, wants to solve the traffic problem, you know, wants to be a, a multi-planetary species. That would be good. I mean, he has this awkward long pause. He sounds like, it's hilarious, Joe Rogan. is. It's like listening to a heart talk to a brain. Joe yeah. Rogan's all emotion <laughs> and Musk is all intellectual. So yeah, that's like, a great description. Yeah, it's, like a, it's like a high schooler talking to their math teacher, you know, yeah. or something. But, but yeah, in the end, like he basically lays it out. He's like, you know, th- that would be a good future. I want to be excited about the future. I think we should be a multi-planetary species. Yeah, and we've talked about it and actually in uh, it's part of our whole narrative-based innovation pitch mm-hmm. is that if you can look at companies that are driven by story, mm-hmm. Tesla is definitely one of those companies that are driven by story. You know, his his story is I'm going to live and retire on Mars. Every one of these businesses that they own will facilitate that. Mm-hmm. 
the boring company. I mean, yeah. they're going to have to live underground on Mars. I mean, the, the uh, cosmic rays hitting yeah, yeah. people, they will die of cancer hmm. within you know, seconds <laughs> if they don't live underground or at least under, you know, mm-hmm. some kind of uh, mm-hmm. EM shield. All of those things feed into what he's going to need when he gets there. Hmm. Food. He hasn't really <laughs> conquered yeah, food that's yet. That's a big one. That's a big one. Yeah. That's a, that's a toughie. The, the water, all the water generation and all that stuff. But I'm sure, give him enough time, he'll, nu- he'll get there. He'll nuke the poles, that says, which, you know, NASA has gone over the math on that and said it really doesn't, it's not going to work. But hmm. we'll, we'll let him see how he does. We'll all benefit from uh, his mania, maybe, really? Yeah, maybe a little bit. Uh, so, Andy, why don't you tell us a little bit about kind of what you do, um, what your, what your kind of claim to fame is, and, and what you guys do at, at Orbit Media. I'm a marketer. And I'm the co-founder of a company that, that's a, that does web design. And it all started 18 years ago. So we've been doing a bit longer than most. Uh, we're maybe, hopefully, a bit better at it than most. This is 18 years. I've been part of the planning process for like 1,500 websites. So yeah. lot, lots of that kind of work. Uh, but the marketing stuff was always about teaching and sharing useful stuff about uh, analytics, search optimization, conversion strategy, all of the content strategy stuff that, go, that combines. So basically, my content videos, book, podcasts, stuff like that is sort of an owner's manual for websites. Sure. It's created some brand confusion because we don't actually do marketing, and a lot of people ask us for that. But yeah, I'm, I'm the co-founder of a web design company, and uh, I'm one of those people who's out there teaching and speaking about uh, things like conversion. Yeah. yeah, and so, you know, I will say the second first time <laughs> I met Andy, um, the first time I didn't remember until after I met him the second time, uh, he was speaking at the Marketing Profs Conference on um, uh, basically on conversion rate optimization, really social proof. You were mm-hmm. talking about all of this uh, kind of psychological cues that people, whether they're conscious of or not, respond to on a website. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was really kind of, one, it made perfect sense to me. I'm like, oh, yeah, ask a marketer or a magician how people are going to behave. They can all tell you what these things are. And that's why I think you're in that kind of marketing magician kind of space with conversion rate optimization, right? You're pulling people's focus to a different place and you are slipping something in front of them that they desire, right? I am. That's the goal. <laughs> there are, I've said before, there's two kinds of things on web pages. There's what the visitor came to find and there's what we want them to see. Mm-hmm. And good web design is about controlling their attention as we give them what they wanted and also what we want them to have in a way that is visual hierarchy and messaging priority and guides their mind through a series of thoughts, seeing answers and evidence, answers and evidence, to get call to action on the bottom, and you generate demand. Yeah, and so uh, what's interesting to me is that kind of these are all trends that predate the web, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When, when did the kind of term conversion rate optimization become a thing? I mean, I remember pretty explicitly when search engine optimization kind of showed up and, mm-hmm. you know, we could all trace it back to a very specific goal. Mm-hmm. CRO is a little different. And I don't know, like in your history, when was this encapsulated into an acronym? I don't know for sure, but I recently had dinner with Ali Gardner, co-founder of Unbounce landing page optimization mm-hmm. company and uh, they pretty much invented that category they were the first like landing page creation optimization platform and that might have been like seven years ago like uh not that long ago yeah and that's kind of the funny thing about all of these web terms even if we kind of go to like user experience thing like mm-hmm. that, again that's probably got a shelf 
life of as mm-hmm. a term seven or eight years mm. as a thing even mm-hmm. though people yeah. were doing kind of parts of those things but it didn't really get kind of coupled to a, a firm idea until that time yeah usability you heard about 20 years ago almost. absolutely but ux much more recent cro much more recent so i'd say usability and seo we all talked about 15 20 years ago yeah but uh but that ux cro stuff and there's a lot of people. I mean, if you put it out there, a lot of people do not know the term CRO. They do not ever measure conversion rates. People have no idea where to look in analytics or they don't think about it as a, you know, what a conversion is. My very first article when I started content marketing, this was in 2007. The first article I ever wrote was learn this term, conversion rate. I didn't say optimization at the time, but I was from the beginning. You missed was, it by that much. I know. I <laughs> could have coined it. No, I don't know. It was probably out already. Uh, they have a problem on social media, though, because CRO also means Croatia. Oh, right. So you can't really use it as a hashtag. Kind of a problem. Well, yeah. we don't even know what Bagnani means in Italian, so uh, <laughs> we could be swearing. Yeah, we really don't we know. We really could be. Anyway, <laughs> that's a good tangent. So, so here's a question. So I know a lot of conversion rate optimization comes down to like testing, A-B testing, right? Mm-hmm. We can make a lot of assumptions. Mm-hmm. What are some of the tools, if someone really hasn't ever done this before, what are some of the tools that they can start employing on their own site that are, you know, not too invasive and, and relatively simple to, if you, I'm assuming sure. you have some technical prowess? Sure, sure. So if it's something that's not live, it's a hypothesis, you're making it, it's a prototype. Usabilityhub.com is one of the fastest ways to just upload something, type up three questions, and an audience will see it and answer your questions. What did you remember from this page? What was this page about? What did this do? Is it, a, you know, if it was a tool, you know, how would you use this? Things like that. Usertesting.com is way more rigorous, much more expensive, but you can put a prototype in front of people that's interactive, like how to use this tool. And people will click through it. They'll tell you their friction. It records their voice while they're interacting. And then you can stitch those together in a short series of videos, little clips from each person's experience. It's like five grand a year plus. 125 per test. Yeah, that seems a bargain, actually. Yeah, that actually, is. Yeah, not that expensive. I mean, relatively and to trying soon. to go out and source individuals sure. to come in and do all that stuff. Right, right. Not, not that expensive. So then now you've got, you know, six or eight people all trying something and you can find immediate friction. So that's if you're in the process, like with the stuff that you and I do, like we build stuff yep. and it's not done yet and we want to show it to a client and we want to validate it first. But uh, if something's already live, Google Optimize is out there. Yep. It's yeah. part of the analytics suite. Just create your variant. It's done through Chrome. Zero software required. It basically is an optimizely killer. Yeah. It's a yeah. visual website optimizer killer. And, and anybody can create simple variants in Google Optimize and quickly see results. Yeah, that is a, it is a powerful, mm. uh, powerful and so easy to implement tool. Yeah, I we mean, do it for ourselves, actually. It's, yeah. I mean, it's because... Anyone can use it. Yeah. Yeah. So the simple stuff, like, trying different calls to action, testing different headlines, uh, different amounts of text, very fast to set up. Like you can build tests within 15, you know, 10 minutes less. Mm -hmm. But the problem is when you want to create variants that are things like layouts or reprioritizing page blocks or messaging, like I said, like if web design is about answering questions and supporting evidence, then you need to, you might want to change how those appear. Like Let's say your audience, you want them, you want to convert them. So you need to know why they wouldn't buy. Well, the reason they might not buy is because they have some price anxiety or something. Okay. So my hypothesis is if I address price earlier on this page, I'm going to have a higher conversion rate. That actually is a little more difficult to test than Google Optimize because I'm changing the messaging priority now Mm -hmm. and want to move things around on the page. Uh, It's 
you kind of got to have like a screwdriver in your back pocket, so to speak, to be able to create that type of variant. Yeah. yeah and I think, you know, a lot of people make the mistakes of changing too many variables at once because mm. it's, well, gosh, I just want to know all these things, right? And then, of course, what you get is you may know that this page converts better and you really have no idea why. Mm -hmm. And, and do you care? Actually, there's a lot of CROs that don't care that much. They want to see the number. They want to see the lift. I got a 20% lift. My client's happy. Everyone's making money. It's really fun, though, when you meet the super nerds who are <laughs> just trying to learn, and they will run tests for the negative. Yeah. Like, oh, I made, it, I made that thing bigger. I got a higher conversion rate. Now I'm going to try making it smaller and hopefully get a lower conversion rate to prove that yeah. the, the hypothesis, which is totally fascinating. Like, when you really get into the science of it, uh, the stuff that's worth publishing, the stuff that's worth uh, teaching, you really should not, you're, you're trying to actually get insights and knowledge that are repeatable rather than just move the number. Yeah, right. you need a control and a var you know, mm -hmm. variable, right? mm -hmm. dependent right. variable. Get right. back to science class from, mm -hmm. from so, high school science. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty easy process once you like, put those parameters around it. Mm -hmm. I know I mentioned earlier, uh, before we went live, um, I saw this article on scarcity, really, and, and it really ties into this CRO issue, right? How do you create the impression or the feeling of scarcity to drive more conversions? Uh, I don't know if you have, you know, if that's something you deal with a lot. And I remember from your social proof, there was, you know, mm -hmm. that's part of the deal, right? Mm -hmm. It's the, uh, you know, offering that, you know, all these people are doing it, you know, it, mm -hmm. it may run out. So tell us a little bit about you know, your views on imposing at least a sense of scarcity in what is actually, a, <laughs> right, the digital realm, there is no scarcity, technically. Well, there are things that are in the real world that are still promoted through digital where you should mention scarcity if there is such a thing. For example, events. We've got a big conference next week. You get, there's only so many tickets available. Mm -hmm. it, and you, you can't get tickets after the event is over. So um, it's a mistake to not mention scarcity if there's something that's truly scarce. So there are lots of products and brands that are doing things where there's not an infinite supply. And so they should legitimately use scarcity without jumping the shark and going overboard with it and, you know, just trying to freak people out for that, for the conversion sake. In that article, though, it's really interesting. I, I got to look at that and we should uh, share that. It's, are people going too far with it if it's like a third of the page? Yeah. Like, there's a very interesting kind of ethical dilemma, too, with like taking advantage of kind of the dark patterns, making the cancel button invisible, making the, like making the, the pattern for you to find how to quit a service hmm. invisible. And to some degree, yes, it is advantageous to a company to hide those things, but it also does a disservice to the individual, to the user who wants to maybe opt out of a thing. And I think the scarcity when taken too far starts to get into that like dark pattern category where mm -hmm. maybe you're doing something that is sitting on that line of taking advantage of some of the internal biases people have to a negative degree. Yeah, scarcity. I mean, if, if you if there's no scarcity, you see brands all the time trying to create it, and they add artificial scarcity when there really is, when there is none. Right. And so that is not that uncommon, and we should see through that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's people who say, you know, I've got. I'm opening up 10 spots for this thing, and that's it. When they're gone, they're gone. They are, you know, or Groupon, right? So we just missed the example right. maybe from a conference. Maybe yeah. that was, yeah, Swedish massage, we've got 10 left. Wait, wait, wait. Do you run out of these things? It's a massage. Like, it's a service. You're not going to run out of them, yeah. right? They just artificially created that, like flash sales and lightning deals and all that stuff is that exact tactic. Adding friction, like you said, like making something hard to do, making the undesirable thing difficult to do intentionally, 
isn't necessarily scarcity, but you also see that all over the place. All over. Yeah. Uh, and could also be hypothetically, could be used ethically. Uh, I've got a friend who's a conversion optimizer, and it's, uh, he has like an addiction treatment client, and they want people to call. The goal is the call. We want to increase calls. We're measuring success on the conversion rate on the phone call. Tap to dial or picking up the phone. They're tracking the phone number through software. They purposely added fields to the, to the contact form to make the contact form more difficult to send the visitors more toward the phone number, especially on mobile. Yeah. So they added friction to one type of conversion to get the visitor to take out, and it was successful. And it's for addiction. It's totally ethical, right? If that person's in the moment, you'd rather have them on the phone Absolutely. than just filling out a form. And I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, an, an idea like friction is necessarily negative. I think with all of these strategies, particularly when we're in kind of like when we're designing for individuals, we want to make sure that we're not um, necessarily taking advantage of things mm -hmm. and still making it easier for them to do maybe the thing we don't want them to do, mm -hmm. but still giving them a way, making them prefer the way, the happy path, mm -hmm. but still giving them a way to kind of go the unhappy path, as in, mm -hmm. at least in terms of how we're thinking of designing experiences and devices. Yeah. I have... Um, if you uh, if you try to cancel cable oh. on your cable on, on your cable provider's website, uh, I did this. I took screenshots. It's hilarious. It's a funny little case study. It's like you search their search tool for cancel cable, and it says no search results. But you might like one of these articles, and it's like top related searches cancel cable. <laughs> it's, and it even shows you it's like twenty four thousand other people have searched for this. Yeah. And there's no pages on the content. There's, yeah. there's no path. They do not want you to, to follow that, to take that action. But the search results page tells you that everyone is trying to do it. Right. It's kind of a funny example. The other side of this kind of introducing friction is making things easy when the, you don't get the result you want. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I have a daughter who's a 14 looking for a homecoming dress, and she goes to a site, uh, and I will call them out, promgirl.com, I think it's what it's called. Mm -hmm. Okay. So she had been, you know, really wanted this dress and, you know, mm -hmm. and it's in stock and she was really happy and she orders it. And, you know, of course it's late, right? These are, this is days before uh, homecoming. And of course, two or three days later, we get an email. Yeah, we really didn't have that in stock. But, you know, we have your credit waiting. Come buy something else. Oh. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and unfortunately uh, for them, they put on the link, tell it, you know, rate us. Tell us how we did. And so I never do that, but I was like, okay. And so I went out publicly and shamed them a little bit. And eventually it took a while, but I got, um, you know, finally credit back on the credit card for the dress. But I mean, this is, this is struck me as a kind of, well, we're going to take the float on this money for three or four days, even though we don't have the thing in stock. Well, that's, a, that's an example. That's a conversion case study where the audience is hypersensitive to time. This dance has a day, right? It's yep. over after that time. If you don't get it by that time, it's worthless to you. Yeah. The value of the dress goes down to zero. So a, a well-optimized site for that visitor would prioritize information about delivery date. That's a, you know, this is one of the things that if you did a conversion map or your, your, your journey mapping or call it what you want, like you're trying to understand that visitor, and you would have made that key in your value proposition, in your service offering. So uh, it's, that, that's a different type of scarcity, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's in, that's pretty intense too, man. So like, so did did this have a happy ending? Did did yeah, we happened. settle on a dress that was going to work out anyway? Well, I would say as an Amazon stockholder, it uh, 
totally had a happy ending because that's where we ended up. Her <laughs> okay. Class. Yep. Uh, the the most interesting thing is, um, you know, by the time she was resigned to finding whatever dress she could find that we could get in the amount of time, uh, it cost about a third as much too. So thank you, Jeff Bezos. You know, you got to give them credit because they basically eliminated that as a buying factor because everyone is so confident in the delivery dates for everything that you buy there. So um, the, the, the just huge advantage built in automatically. Those, those pages don't even have to talk about it. Yeah. So let, that's a really great kind of transition point into to one more topic we kind of wanted to cover today, which is a baked in advantage. Um, and um, we've talked a little bit about um, data and who owns the data and how do you control your data and how do you provide permission to that data um, getting to other services? And, and Mr. Dobb, explain a little about, um, about solid. Uh, solid. Yeah, this, this service that's kind of coming up to try and maybe they're attempting to solve a part of that issue. But I, I think that there are maybe some baked in hmm. structural issues now with the ecosystem that might kind of hinder that progress. Yeah, well, I think the... You know, calling it a, uh, a service is probably an overstatement of what it is. It's a protocol, uh, and there are a number of ways that that protocol can be implemented. You can actually not only own your data and your profile and your, your certificates that say, I am who I am, you can run the server yourself that um, is authenticating that identification, you know, all around the web. Um, it's Tim Berners-Lee. He created the, you know, uh, basically the HTTP protocol, which mm -hmm. made the web go. Um, and, you know, he's been <laughs> distressed pretty much since day one about what people have been doing with it. And, 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 you know, as soon as the marketers got involved and it wasn't just academics, he was a little what shall we annoyed. Say? <laughs> hmm. um, but, you know, he's a really smart guy and they've been working on this. What did he say? I think he said for like 12 years. Right, which, it's been a long time. Wow. My gut reaction is, and I've tried to get into like how it's structured and the technologies they're using. And, I, and admittedly, um, it's still very foggy for me. Uh, but the, the, the issue with this is the network effect ultimately, right? So I can create this server and I own this, um, my data, but somebody has to use that, right? So there has to be somewhere who's saying, I'm going to implement this on my end to make that the, the identification protocol. And there's a huge economic disincentive for companies on the web to let you own your data. The other side of that is even if they all said, sure, you can own your identification slash sign in, there's nothing preventing them from using like inferred profile data, mm -hmm. which they all do now anyway, to do the same things they're doing now. And kind of, um, I don't know if you've ever read any of these articles about the anonymized data is really not anonymous, right? All you need is a couple of mm. quick um, you know, wayfinding points mm -hmm. and you can start to really, uh, you know, if you know where someone's going, you know that the trail they left behind is theirs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's the classic, like, how does a detective do his work without interviewing the subject, right? Well, the detective goes through the garbage. They talk to the mm -hmm. doorman. They talk to the person at the grocery store and through those series of touch points, well, there's your whole day. Without And I haven't even talked to you, and I knew every place you were from the time you woke up to the time you went to sleep. And, and I think it's actually a really good solution from what I can read. And we talked about it, actually. And, you know, of course, I'll take credit for everything. But we kind of talked about a solution like this a few weeks back. And when we were talking about GDPR, that that's kind of the only way it's going to work. 
But I also think that unless it is a legislated solution, um, then you won't get the network effect. There's an economic disincentive to, to decentralize like that. Well, when I hear about that, so Tim Berners-Lee invents Solid. It's a data standard. It lets people control their data and who has access to it. And it prevents massive breaches like TransUnion or who was that? Yeah, like, oh, like Equifax. Yeah, Equifax. And so horrible stories, right? And he wants to solve this problem. The irony is he needs marketing. <laughs> if he's annoyed by marketers, how is he going to get adoption on yeah, this without yeah. it, being able to explain it without, you know, the person's not a math major like you. It's... Yeah, it's this, fairly it, opaque, yeah, right, to, to the, takes, the lay person when it I, comes to the technology space. Yeah, I mean, I, I understood all of the words, and I still didn't quite get how it, you know, what the, what those handshakes look like in a right. transaction. You know, yeah. who, you know, I was like... Well, it's another degree of abstraction. Yeah. So we had software, it was installed, and the data was on your computer. Okay, now we have software, it's somewhere on the internet, and the data is somewhere on the internet. Wait, now there's software somewhere on the internet it's in a cloud and your data maybe is somewhere else in the cloud, like it's your data. So you want to have, so you need a service, you're going to pay for a service. And really what he's doing is just a standard and right. he's got a name, but that is not the easy, it's like blockchain. Yeah. What? Like, yeah, I don't again, know. Like, it needs marketing. Yeah. It needs a, a translator. Totally. Because, uh, you know, or it needs a new, it needs a new name that says what yeah. it does. Like it, right. there's all of these, and I think you're totally right. Like there is a, um, uh, it's too smart for its own good. You know, some mm -hmm. of these things, they're, they're, they're too clever by half. There's a kernel of aha yeah. to each of those ideas that is kind of hidden by all the other stuff. Yeah. If you start with the problem, like Equifax, never again, like people, now they're motivated. Like how would you convert that person, right? What would your, what would your journey mapping be to get the typical user on the internet, right? That's anybody to want this service, to embrace that standard. Mm, I don't know. I mean, you really have to, uh, doesn't, you need a killer app or you need a good case study or a story or ironically, Tim Berners-Lee might be annoyed by what marketers did to the internet, but maybe now he needs marketers to help him save the internet because <laughs> he's not going to be the best messenger for that message. Yeah. And you know, Equifax didn't necessarily collect all this stuff at once, right? It wasn't, they went out and said, please, you know, I'm going to get something from you. They were doing all this inferred you know, database. Fingerprinting. Yeah, well, and, and uh, you know, um, data merging and, you know, just doing statistical analysis and all of these consumer uh, databases. I, I think it's like unsinkable rubber ducks, right? When, this, when there is a, a trail out there, somebody's going to aggregate that information and create the next honeypot, mm -hmm. right? As soon as they start affixing it to, you know, other data, I mean, someone's going to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the other part of this conversation is do people care about that anymore? Like, yeah. and, and I, I, part of me thinks, and I'm sure there's some great research out there that I did not look up prior to my, the statement that's going to come on my face, but people who maybe have been using these types of heavily personalized data services now, the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Google, for their whole lives have a different attitude toward what their data means. Like what, what is privacy? And I, maybe that's the bigger debate. Maybe people don't care because maybe they can't sell it because people don't care. You know, there's a certain point where they kind of mm -hmm. just give up. They're mm -hmm. like, you know what? That's somebody else's issue. I don't know how to fix it. Why mm -hmm. would I know how to fix it? So I'm just going to keep using the things that work for me and hope nothing bad happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's generational for sure. Um, interestingly, you know, Facebook is filled with baby boomers, really. I mean, mm -hmm. if you talk about the active 
the most active users are baby boomers, and they're actually the most sensitive to this stuff. Mm -hmm. Whether most of them care still is another question. But um, there has been a decline in Facebook usage since a lot of these things have been coming out in the past, you know, six to 12 months. Um, so I found that a little interesting that they're finally starting to see declines in, in uh, users versus constant growth. Um, though, but we all know, like, we've done surveys, and millennials, they, they, they assume their data is not private, and they assume it's going to be harvested and used, you know, both to their benefit and, to the, and against them. We'll see what happens with Gen Z when they have their own money and start, you know, wandering the internet, buying things, and if that makes a difference to them. So we'll see what happens with them. I think it's an open book at this point. Well, even if decentralizing data was suddenly super important to people, the odds of success are pretty low because digital monopolies have no interest in that. It's, it's, like, a, <laughs> it's like having a two-party political system. Yeah, it'd be great if we had another party. Sure, everyone kind of likes that idea, right? But who on... Right. Where, you know, even if voters love the idea, it's still the, you know, the, the rule makers put blocks up, you know, that make it harder to, to pass. So why would Google or Facebook suddenly say, sure, click this button and we'll decentralize your data and you can hide it from us forever. Yeah. They'll never make that. Why, why would they make that button? Yeah. yeah. Agreed. And, uh, you know, and this gets back to your legislation point, right? Yeah. Like ultimately that's where it will have to come from. Right? Yeah. You know, you brought up the, the, the third party and the, um, it kind of is the same thing because everyone tries to start third parties at the biggest uh, elections around, like presidential elections, right? That's when suddenly you have independents mm -hmm. or libertarians or whomever show up, but they never run for like the water reclamation district and they never run for dog catcher, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the issue with these parties is you have to have this kind of big network and you feed people up through it and you find candidates by mm -hmm. getting them in smaller um, offices and this is the same problem with decentralized security, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there's <laughs> no one wants to start out there. They want your data is already in central databases. Yeah, and, right. And they want Google and Facebook to give that up, just like the other parties, yeah. right? And they're like, no, right? <laughs> or, or the bank, the bank's going to say, oh wait, yeah, we'll we'll give it back to you, and then anytime you decide, you can cut us off from it forever. What? Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> they're in the business of mon. That's exactly what they're trying to monetize. Right. Like, why would you say? You know, it's, a, it, it's just a power that they're unlikely to yield. Yeah. I don't blame them either. It's doing very well for them. It's yeah. the opposite of their business models. Yeah. All right. So normally we end our uh, podcasts on a very dark and uh, <laughs> dour note. <laughs> I'm going to try something different this what? time. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. Uh, uh, you recently released a book. It's plug time, Andy. Okay. Uh, well, Why not? Sure. So, Make it positive, though. I hope the book's not... I haven't read the book, actually. I just know that you've put one out. Okay. So, uh, dear listener, you are 10 days away from having a huge upgrade in your knowledge and uh, ability to practically apply uh, marketing actions, and all you need to do is to buy this book and spend a little time with it. It's called Content Chemistry. Uh, it's Good a, name. It's a handbook. Right, it's science-based. It's, it's a theme. It's not pictures? a chemistry book. Are there pictures? It's the illustrated handbook to content marketing, oh, and it is filled with pictures. There are awesome. charts and graphs on every page. It's totally scannable. It's step-by-step uh, it's -step instructions, and it's one section is lab, the next section is, or the first section is lecture, the second section is lab, and it tells you how to do everything. Search, social, email, keyword research, uh, social proof, conversion, 
uh, analytics is in every chapter. It's everything I know about digital, maximizing email open rates, everything I know about digital in uh, like 200 pages. That sounds right. awesome. And will it be available through all the normal channels? It's already uh, for sale. You, you could be the, um, uh, it sells about six copies a day for what that's worth. It's, it's worth six copies a day. That's sure as much is. as it's worth. Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah. It's on Amazon. It's anywhere. It'll be by Andy Crestadina of Orbit Media. Thanks for that, Justin. All right. Well, thanks for coming in, Andy. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. This was awesome. You are the best best dressed uh, podcast guest we've ever had. Hands down. Yeah. Let's take a selfie. We will, and we'll post it on social media. (laughs) It's good. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Brilliant. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe or rate us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Brilliant is recorded at Mignani, an experienced design and strategy firm in Chicago, Illinois. To learn more about what Mignani can do for you, visit Mignani.com. That's M-A-G-N-A-N-I.com.